0: You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Rosalind English. How do family courts deal with domestic violence and abuse? We're in very difficult terrain here. The purpose of criminal law is the prosecution of criminal behaviour and the punishment of offenders by the state. The purpose of family law is to resolve disputes between parents and other family members, which sometimes includes the need to protect victims of abuse. These two domains, family and criminal, overlap in the most complicated way. I'm here with family law experts Richard Eger and Claire Cziborowska of One Crown Office Row to explore this tricky territory. This episode is the first in a series of podcasts from the family law team at One Crown Office Row in Brighton, highlighting developments and analysing case law from the family courts. Shall we start with you, Richard, and maybe you could set out the difference between private family disputes and public proceedings with children in care?
1: Thank you, Rosalind, and thank you for having me on. Yes, the difference can be put quite starkly in that it's the difference between proceedings under part two of the Children Act of 1989, which are private law proceedings, and part four of the Children Act, which are public law proceedings. But private law proceedings are those between separating parents who are seeking to have their difficulties resolved about the arrangements for their children. Whereas in public law cases, they're brought by a local authority, the Children's Services Department, where they say that a child is suffering or is likely to suffer significant harm and they're seeking a care or a supervision order. Two very different areas, but with links, of course, because if a judge hearing a private law case between separating parents becomes worried that the child he's hearing about is suffering significant harm or likely suffers significant harm he can direct a report from the local authority and they can come into care that way and similarly a judge dealing with public law care proceedings if all is well can make private law orders determining that a child should live with a grandfather a grandmother and aunt and uncle whoever it may be or with the parent and which parent so whilst there's a feeling of separateness there are overlaps Maintaining the memory that one is proceedings between separating, divorcing parents about the arrangements for their child, and the other is where a local authority is involved seeking a care or a supervision order. That's the fundamental difference.
0: And it's more complicated in private law proceedings because obviously the child is not ward of the court or in the public authorities' care and control. And that is presumably why it was so important to bring out this recent practice direction, PD-12J, to give courts, family courts, some guidance as to what to do in these situations.
1: Well, Yes. I mean, going back many, many years, when the Children Act was a butter bill, and Lady Hale, then Brendy Hoggett, who was the author of the bill, was describing the Children Act. She described it as the privatisation of family law because before then, the court had to determine the arrangements with the children in every divorce. There was a procedure for a certificate of satisfaction in respect to the arrangements of the children. And this act altered the balance so that parents... Exercise parental responsibility for their children, and it is only if they are unable to resolve those issues that the matter is put before the court by one or other of them. Yes, guidance has been necessary along the way. the The journey to where we are now through the field of domestic abuse, coercive control, and the like has been a long and a bumpy one. And PD twelve J is the most recent offering to help courts take into account what needs to be taken into account and to set out a procedure that deals with it fairly and properly.
0: Maybe I should turn to you, Claire, to set out the constituent elements of this recent practice direction before we go back and have a look at the case law.
2: Certainly, yes. And thank you for having me back on the podcast series. And yes, Practice Direction 12J is really set out to provide guidance for the parties and the court when allegations of domestic abuse are made, or where there is a risk of that type of abuse. And so within that practice direction, there are general principles. One of the main principles is that the practice direction recognises that domestic abuse is harmful to children, and or puts children at risk of harm, whether they are subjected to domestic abuse or witness one of their parents being violent or abusive to the other parent, or if they live in a home where domestic abuse is perpetrated, and even if the child is too young to necessarily be conscious of that type of behaviour. Another general principle is that children may suffer direct physical, psychological and or emotional harm from living with domestic abuse, and may also suffer harm indirectly whether domestic abuse impairs the parenting capacity of either or both of their parents. The guidance effectively provides for these issues to be identified at an early opportunity within the proceedings and to look at whether any allegations of domestic abuse are relevant to the decisions that the court's been asked to make in terms of which parent should the child live with, Should the child spend time with a parent? And if so, does that need to be supervised? Could it be overnight contact? How often should that contact take place? And so really it needs to be identified very early on in a case if abuse is alleged or suspected. And the court must give directions to enable any contested elements of a case to be determined by way of a fact-finding hearing effectively as soon as possible. And so the practice direction provides sort of step-by-step guidance to the court so it really flags up and, and underlines those cases where domestic abuse is going to be relevant to the eventual decision that the court's been asked to make.
0: But obviously this practice direction which is very recent is a complete step change to what the situation was like in the 70s when you actually had to have evidence of ABH actual bodily harm to alert the court to abuse. Now we have this sort of fog of war, this cursive and controlling behaviour, which cannot be easily proved. Is that the issue?
2: Absolutely. So it used to be the case, and I think this is something that's set out in in one of the cases that we're going to look at a little later, but it used to be the case that there needed to be evidence of physical assault before a court would look at allegations of domestic violence, as it then was. So the term domestic violence would obviously indicate a violent act needed to to take place. We've since had lots of guidance, certainly in the family courts, about domestic abuse and that term replacing the term domestic violence and recognising that not all such domestic abuse has to involve a physical act. We've also, in recent years, in 2015, had the introduction in the criminal law of Section 76 of the Serious Crime Act, which introduced the offence of coercive and controlling behaviour in an intimate relationship. And that now criminalises coercive and controlling behaviour. And obviously there are parallels with the definition contained in the criminal law with the definition that's now contained in practice direction 12J.
0: I just want to get into the practicalities of how people in family disputes are able to get support to obtain legal representation under this new regime.
1: Support comes in many forms. Firstly, there are a number of domestic violence charities around who will provide the practical support for the victims. For example, in Brighton, we have an organisation called Rise, who until very lately were involved with supportively. They unfortunately lost their contract with Brighton, the Hove city council, and it's now been transferred to I can't remember whom. But they're there to support victims. They often refer on to lawyers to seek advice about, firstly, protection they can obtain by way of an injunction under the Family Law Act of 1996 and or to take proceedings under the Children Act to sort out the arrangements for their children. LASPO, that famous piece of legislation, unfortunately impacted greatly on the availability of public funding for victims of abuse, but also for alleged perpetrators, and the alleged perpetrator situation is still not resolved. For the abused they had to provide specific pieces of evidence in order to qualify for public funding on merits, GP letter, police referral, injunction, or other immediate evidence. But, of course, the sort of behaviour we're talking about is more hidden sometimes than that direct violence that is so often. And for... The victim to provide such evidence, concrete evidence of the difficulties they were experiencing in their relationship, often proved impossible, which meant that public funding was not available and therefore affording lawyers to assist them through this very complex, difficult area, a minefield, one might call it, became impossible. But the other side of it is... The alleged perpetrator does not qualify for public funding. And we're going to come on later to discuss the ramifications of that and the various attempts that are soon to be made to resolve that and to ensure that alleged perpetrators, alleged abusers, have to be represented to avoid the appalling spectre of the alleged abuser cross-examining the victim with all that that might imply, something which the criminal courts resolved some years ago with the appointment of a special advocate to deal with that situation. And it's curious and perhaps reprehensible that the family court lags so far behind the criminal courts in dealing with this very fundamental aspect. But, of course, we do have means testing as well. I've talked about merits testing, but means testing of public funding arises as well. And as we know, as part of government cutbacks essentially only those on very basic universal credit qualify and sometimes the expense of proceedings is prohibitive and it is a concern that the population as a whole is not served well by the public funding system to enable people to obtain the protection or to resolve the difficulties with their children which means we may be facing a tip of an iceberg at the moment in terms of cases despite the numbers growing enormously.
0: And I suppose from what you say the proliferation or the prevalence should I say rather of unrepresented litigants in person in the family courts only makes an overstretched system even more strained.
1: Sadly that is the case. The days of district judges because it is that tier of judiciary that largely deals with first hearings in these children act cases could previously deal with five six cases of a morning since laspo came in it's down to two or three at most which means that the delays for all the other cases increase because the capacity is reduced because of the time that is needed to assist a litigant in person, to appreciate the issues that must be considered, as well as dealing with the emotional fallout. Because take a father who has not seen his child for a while on the basis of what he thinks are false allegations, expecting him to be able to control his emotions and behave in a calm, rational way within a courtroom is probably expecting too much. So the court is having to deal not only with people who don't understand the rules of evidence, the need to bring together relevant evidence that's relevant to the issue, but also having to deal with the fallout of strained emotions over some time. And one finds when one is in such a hearing that, as an advocate, that the judge inevitably has to spend far more time with the litigant in person on the other side, as it were, explaining basic essential points before we can deal with the actual issues that need to be determined. And so that one-hour time estimate becomes a two-hour hearing and with the inevitable knock-on.
0: It's an incredible burden on family court judges, surely, and this inquisitorial investigative role that they have what it must be like for a judge who is brought in on a case where they're not particularly experienced in family law doesn't bear thinking about.
1: Quite. I have enormous sympathy for the district bench particularly, but judges at all levels, because of that very point. As we know, district judges come from many a professional background and despite the training, despite the information provided through the Judicial College... It's still a new area and becoming having to get used to not only a new process, a new procedure, new practice directions and the like, it's also becoming aware of that raw emotion that manifests itself so often in the family court that adds the burden. And it may explain why there are recruitment difficulties at particularly district bench level. Take our courts in Sussex. We are fearfully short of district judges. In Brighton, judges have become burnt out and left before retirement age and there is a shortage and all credit to those that remain and shoulder the burden but it is such a burden as part of the advocate's role to try and make things as efficient as possible so that that judge can be assisted and pointed in the right direction. But against a litigant in person, that is a very difficult thing to do and very difficult thing for the district judge to demonstrate the balance, because even if, take it, the victim represented, hears the judge talking to the alleged abuser for a significant proportion of the hearing time, is going to wonder what's going on here. Why isn't this judge giving my advocate the chance to talk? So it is enormously difficult, and the burdens on the judiciary are greater than substantial if there's such a thing
0: well the president of the family court division has had an opportunity to comment on all of this in the case of h n and others would you like to tell us something about this case claire and where it gets us because i gather it's very much a go-to case on private law family hearings
2: Yes, and so this case was uh, conjoined appeals that were listed for the President in the Court of Appeal, and all of which involved allegations of domestic abuse. And so it was really an opportunity for the Court of Appeal to deliver effectively guidance as to how courts should be treating allegations of domestic abuse, and in particular, allegations of coercive control. And just prior to that judgment being published, there was another case of FNM, which is a 2021 case that was before Mr Justice Hayden. And that case dealt comprehensively with a case involving very serious allegations of coercive and controlling behaviour, where there were no other allegations of physical violence. And so very much those two cases we've had in quick succession, but provide quite a lot of guidance now for the family courts. But I think in some respects, the Court of Appeal judgment doesn't really go as far as was anticipated because many of the aspects that were referred to the Court of Appeal are being dealt with other groups. And there is certainly it's a developing area of law, but there are certainly some principles that we can extract from that case, nevertheless, to assist in practice. In particular, what came out very clearly is that the Court of Appeal were of the view that practice direction 12J is fit for purpose, it is sufficient, and it's there to highlight, as I said earlier, those cases which feature allegations of domestic abuse. But what it says is that the challenge effectively relates to the proper implementation of practice direction 12J. And so this judgment very much emphasises this difficulty that the court's in with needing to to have fact-finding hearings early in the proceedings to establish contested facts of one person alleging something that the other person doesn't accept, and the court having a very binary process in respect of that. So it either happened or it didn't. So if a finding isn't made, then that allegation cannot form the basis of any subsequent risk assessment and so it really is a very stark job that the trial judge has because the stakes are so high. And that was what was referenced in, in H&N. And so on the other hand, the court is faced with a massive reduction in resources, as Richard's already emphasised, the burdens on the court system at the moment. We know from that judgment and, in fact, from recent Kafkas statistics just looking at the start of 2021, Kafkas report a 38% increase in the number of private law applications from the year previously. And so numbers of cases are going up. And the instances of coercive control that are alleged are also going up. And so the court has to strike this balance between fair trial, determining these applications, listing the case for a fact finding, but whilst also being very mindful of there being a massive lack of court time, parties being unrepresented, but it, certainly in cases of coercive and controlling behaviour, there tends to be volumes and volumes of evidence, because what you're trying to establish is a pattern of behaviour, which isn't necessarily easily evidenced by one source. And so it may be that there is much more witness testimony, for example. And in fact, in the M case that Mr Justice Hayden dealt with, that was a two-week fact-finding hearing. So that's 10 days of court time dedicated just to that aspect of, is this a case of coercive and controlling behaviour? And the court heard from a number of key witnesses in that case, but it was largely based on the testimony of the victim, of the family members and of professionals working with the family. What that case really emphasised is where you are dealing with a case of really serious coercive control. It's a monumental task going through that as a lawyer for the court to go through. And again, in, in H&M, court reflects back on another judgment, an earlier judgment of Mr Justice Peter Jackson, highlighted in the case of F, which is a 2017 case. Mr Justice Jackson identified that it was equally important to be clear that not all directive, assertive, stubborn or selfish behaviour amounts to abuse, Much will in turn on the intention of the perpetrator of the alleged abuse and of the harmful impact of the behaviour. And so he said that few relationships lack instances of bad behaviour on the part of one or both parties at some time. And it's a rare family case that does not contain complaints by one party against the other and often complaints are made by both. Yet not all such behaviour will amount to domestic abuse, where coercive behaviour is defined as behaviour that is used to harm, punish or frighten the victim. And controlling behaviour is defined as behaviour designed to make a person subordinate. So again, there is this real tension between cases of bad behaviour, where allegations are made by one party against the other, that could potentially amount to a suggestion that that is domestic abuse, versus cases where Domestic abuse, controlling and coercive behaviour is really prevalent and is having a really serious impact on the victim and proving a substantial risk to a child involved in a contact dispute.
0: It does, does make me think of Tolstoy's opening lines and Anna Karenina about all families being equal in unhappiness. <laughs> and it's the, it's the family court's inimical job to find out just where the bright line between unhappiness
2: and abuse Lies. Exactly that. And that is the real challenge because, in a serious case of abuse, then allocating two weeks to a fact finding hearing may be exactly what's required and a proportionate response and an absolutely necessary exercise for the court to have a proper grasp of the facts so that a risk assessment can be undertaken as to whether that child is safe having contact with a parent who's perpetrated such serious abuse versus the court having a disproportionate amount of time allocated to cases where the court, it simply becomes, I think Mr Justice Jackson described it as a battleground for adult conflict. And that is very much the difficulty and fixed against a a situation where you've got very busy court lists and all these directions require very careful consideration, careful arguments on both sides. You may only have 30 minutes at your first hearing appointment And so it's even more important, really, for the lawyers to really get to grips with the case early on and to highlight and emphasise to the court where cases are of that more serious nature of very serious abuse.
0: One of the big changes that have been proposed in these recent cases and in the practice direction is that This thing called the Scott Schedule is no longer fit for purpose. Can you explain a little bit more to the non-family specialists in our audience what this means?
1: Of course. Well, Mr Scott was a quantity surveyor and he designed Scott Schedules to assist with building disputes, which, no pun intended, tend to have concrete points that need to be considered. Has that wall been built properly? What's the cost of putting it right? So you could have date, allegation, cost, and that was a Scott schedule. And over the years, they've been imported into family proceedings and particularly domestic abuse cases as an attempt to pinpoint precisely what is being alleged by the victim. So again, you'd have a date, allegation in crisp form, where is it referred to, and then two other boxes... One for the respondent's response and then for the judge's finding at the end. The criticism of these schedules is that in cases of coercive control, it's very difficult to say on the 26th of April 2021, this happened. And I seek a finding that it happened because the behaviour is pervasive. It interferes with every aspect of the victim's life. And it's impossible to strictly define down or to strip it down to that really hard factual basis on which a determination could be made. That's true. That isn't true. It's far more complex than that. And so over time, the criticism has grown that these scott schedules are too restrictive and don't enable the full picture to be put forward. And Mr Justice Hayden in FNM said that and said the Court of Appeal are going to be considering it in re which they certainly did. And their consideration of it begins at paragraph 41 onwards. And they're clear that in their final analysis, there is a need to move away from using these schedules because they are too restrictive. And they don't enable the full picture to be explained. They speculate on whether perhaps having formal pleadings would be better than a Scott schedule. I have to say I struggle a little with that because the same could apply where there is an allegation of coercive control. And my view for what it is worth is that narrative statements are the best way of describing these very, very difficult cases. But the Court of Appeal didn't determine what we should do. They simply said, we need to move away from Scott schedules. They floated some ideas or not, and have said that the Private Law Working Group, which is a subgroup of the Family Justice Board um, run by the President, will be looking at that because the criticism of Scott Schedules is across the board. It was mentioned by in the um, Harm Report of June 2020, H&M, all of the organisations that appeared before the Court of Appeal were critical of Scott Schedules, and those organisations spanned across Women's Aid, Women's Aid Wales, Rape Crisis and Rights of Women, Families Need Fathers and the Association of Lawyers for Children. So there's a very broad view that Scott schedules are too restrictive and it needs amending and adaptive. But having said all of that, the court of appeal said we'll look at it and we'll let you know the answer in due course.
0: So we still don't have an answer to how to place these allegations in a proper form or practical form?
1: No, indeed not. And We're in a bit of a hiatus. Earlier today, I was dealing with a case of domestic abuse and we were debating how they should be set out because RHN is there, it tells us that we should be moving away from Scott Schedules, but it doesn't tell us what to do. So going back to the point we were discussing earlier about pressures on the judiciary, at present we have the judiciary finding their way to the best way of dealing with these very difficult issues without a clear steer other than we should be moving away from Scot schedules. So it was an interesting debate in our case.
0: We started this discussion regarding the overlap and the relationship between what is being considered in the family courts and what is being looked at in the criminal courts. Obviously, family court judges are not going to be expected to get into the technicalities of what constitutes a particular offence or not. But there must be some sort of relationship if there are criminal proceedings ongoing whilst private family court proceedings are... Initiated.
1: That's right. Very often running in parallel for a while and very often causing a consternation, cost and delay. Take an incident. The alleged abuser is arrested. The police will notify local children's services of that through by way of a document called a SCARF or an MOGP-1. That is a disclosable document. They will carry out their investigations. There'll be interviews with relevant people. There'll be gathering of other evidence, the interrogation of mobile phone devices, all carried out by the police. Of course, they may release the alleged perpetrator on bail with conditions not to approach or go to certain addresses or not to behave in a certain way. That is relevant. Previous convictions may well be relevant in these cases. And therefore, there has to be a good flow of information coming across from the criminal investigation into the family court. And in principle, that is accepted. The practicalities of that can cause tremendous difficulties with regard to particularly delay Firstly, if the police are carrying out an investigation, they will not necessarily wish the alleged perpetrator to have the evidence which they've accumulated prior to an opportunity to interview further. So that's the first point. But secondly, like all public services, the police are under tremendous pressure themselves with cuts to funding, cuts to officers, cuts to civilian support. And so a request from the family court under the relevant protocol to the police, may take many months to produce the information that is required. And that can cause delay in resolving the issues, causes pressure for the parties. It may lead to a longer period where the alleged perpetrator is not having a relationship with their children than might be absolutely necessary depending on the outcome of any fact-finding hearing and it may cause cost and i have had cases where a fact-finding hearing has been directed in anticipation of receiving police evidence where because of lack of resources it hasn't been received and the case has had to be adjourned for a further period of months and that is not good bearing in mind the principle that delay is not in the best interests of children in decision-making about their futures. But that is the nature of the world we, we live in.
0: So what I'm hearing from you, Richard, is that these proceedings, criminal and family, are only going to march as fast as the slowest foot
1: soldier. Yes, in a way. And... Uh, <laughs> There are delays within the family justice system anyway because of resources and if one asks for a hearing today on the fact finding we're unlikely to get one till the autumn, but if you then add in two or three months for the police to produce their disclosure, which sometimes comes complete, sometimes doesn't come complete, sometimes is redacted to such an extent that trying to understand what is in the police disclosure is made a bit of a challenge, even to the legal teams that are there. It does add to the complexity and the delays within the proceedings. Of course, if there is a conviction for coercive control, then that's the end of it as far as the family court is concerned. There is a beyond reasonable doubt conviction, and so there is no need to have a fact finding hearing about that element and about any other conviction. So, if there was a conviction previously and they resume the relationship and then there's been further problems. We can look back at that previous conviction and say that was proved and we don't need to reprove it or call the evidence on that particular point. Sometimes explaining that to litigants in person and lay clients is quite a challenge, that you were found guilty of this offence, it was proved beyond reasonable doubt and the family court cannot and should not go behind it. Well, I think we've covered
0: some of the most pressing areas of difficulty here Looking slightly to the future, and this will no doubt be covered by your team in future episodes of the podcast, do you think that the Domestic Abuse Bill, which is now before Parliament, is going to help or hinder this process?
1: My view is, uh, well, let me start. The Bill was introduced in 2017 and it's fallen three times now because of A, the prorogation of Parliament and B, two general elections. And whilst always delighted to hear MPs of all parties expressing their support for this very important piece of legislation, one has to question that when it's taken four years to get anywhere near the statute book. But yes, I think there are improvements coming in there. The statutory definitions are clear. The process is clear. The ban on the alleged perpetrator cross-examining the victim is clear and the provision for the appointment of a special advocate subject to funding arrangements being agreed by the Lord Chancellor, we await those regulations with interest. All have the appearance of making things improved in the circumstances. We're still left with a system that is short of resources we're still left with a system that's short of time to deal with these difficult issues. And as Claire said earlier, the increase in private law cases is some 38% year-on-year, 2020-21, year, to 21, which shows that these resources will be increasingly stretched as inevitably more cases are identified as being abusive behaviour in the widest sense and needing determination by the court.
2: Claire, do you have anything that you want to add? Well, just on that final point, really, is that the case of HN also emphasised the President's guidance in The Road Ahead from June of last year of 2020, which basically says that parties appearing before the court should expect issues to be limited only to those which are necessary to determine to dispose of the case and for oral evidence or oral submissions to be cut down only to that which is necessary for the court to hear and emphasising that parties will not be allowed to litigate every issue and present extensive oral evidence or oral submissions at a hearing. And so, again, yes, the domestic abuse bill is welcomed and it will address a number of the the key issues. But as Richard said, it isn't going to address some of the deeper problems within the system. And just finally, a word on the role of the special advocate as I understand it, as it's um, being drafted, that that role will really only cover specific cross-examination on key, narrow issues. It is certainly not a substitute for full representation and legal advice. And certainly, the special advocate does not become that person's lawyer. They are there simply to assist the court with a very specific task of cross-examination. And so, whilst that is welcome, and that will no doubt address some of the issues, it's certainly not going to to pick up the pieces of a, a lack of representation for those who are accused of domestic abuse and wanting to have those allegations determined fairly.
0: So obviously the domestic abuse bill is not going to be a silver bullet, at least to resolve all these resource and staffing problems. In this area, we'll hear more about how the practice direction and these cases are going to play out in practice from you in your future episodes from Family Law team at One Crown Office Road Brighton. Thank you very much, Claire and Richard, for explaining this complex area to us. Thank you. Thank you. All references to cases and law and practice directions and so on will be fully set out in the blurb, which will be published on the UK Human rights blog when this podcast goes up. Lawpod UK is presented by Rosalind English and is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast and recommend us to a friend.